Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Trevor, how are you doing this afternoon? I am doing great. Thanks. How are you? Doing great. Thanks again for coming back on the show. I think you're our first repeat guest, uh, which is which is super cool. I'm I'm excited about the effort you're working on and uh, the problems you're admiring, and and you've got a, a new initiative there. I kind of wanted to highlight um, on the show and, and get a little more um, eyes on it, if, if if that makes sense, because I really believe in kind of the mission you're working on. Um, just for someone who you know perhaps didn't listen to the last episode, do you mind giving us like a brief bio and uh, you know some of the big problems you're interested in? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, hi, Trevor. Um, In terms of a bio, I have a really weird non-traditional background. Um, So, done like a bootstrapped ed tech slash tutoring business and then veered into doing a biotech startup um, after spending several years posting essays uh, on Reddit and arguing about them in the comment, like biotech essays and biology essays. Uh, so, you know, what we're working on essentially is, you know, with this biotech startup, Highway Pharmaceuticals is uh, immunosuppressants. Um, and specifically what we're working on right now is creating safer, better versions of immunosuppressants for animal autoimmune diseases human autoimmune diseases, and eventually human neurodegenerative diseases like, you know, dementia and Parkinson's and that kind of thing. I love that. I love that. Um, how did you first come up with the drug cyclosporin as the, the the one to use, if that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I got interested in this problem, I was looking for, you know, sort of ways to tackle it. Um, and I came across this drug, cyclosporin, which is, you know, used to be a really widely used immunosuppressant um, in humans, sort of fallen out of fashion, um, still pretty widely used in animals. Uh, and what I thought was interesting about it is it's, you know, this really powerful drug. It has great effects in a ton of different diseases, everything from, you know, psoriasis to IBD to, you know, there are even some early studies done on like ALS and stuff where it showed some promise. Uh, but it always been, you know, sort of relegated or, or used less because it has a bunch of bad side effects and it's it's pretty hard to dose. It's a, it's a very tricky drug. So, you know, I was focusing a lot on how can we make this drug, which is so powerful, but so hard to use, how can we make it easier to use, safer, better? And so, you know, doing research on that eventually came up with this uh, idea that if we combined it with a, you know, certain other drug, which is a metabolic inhibitor, we could solve a lot of the issues while keeping the potency. So that's, you know, it started off by looking at some human case studies where they had done this accidentally and then move on to in vitro studies. And, you know, now like we're really uh, testing the, this and well, cats. 
<laughs> and uh, why cats? You know, <laughs> you always hear about mice. You know, you hear about uh, you know perhaps these rhesus monkeys, perhaps dogs, dogs beagles, yeah. or something. But like you know, you don't often hear cats. Okay. Yes. So there's a good reason why you don't often hear cats. It's actually funny. I have a I have a friend who was like thinking of testing drugs, and he was like, "Do you think I should test my drug in cats?" And I was like, "Probably not, unless you're really certain that you want to." Um, and so, you know, cats in general are harder to deal with than dogs, which would be the other obvious option. You know, cats, they're, you know, they're tricky animals as anyone who's owned a cat. They're a little smaller than dogs. Uh, and, you know, they also, you know, can have some uh, bad reactions to certain drugs like uh, Tylenol, for instance. Uh, cats can't take Tylenol for sort of biological reason. Um, but, you know, what we found when we were looking at like really good uses for this safer version of cyclosporin um, is essentially that cats get this, you know, autoimmune disease called feline stomatitis. It affects about 1% of all cats. Um, and like right now it really doesn't have a good treatment. And we wanted to, you know, think like, okay, could this be something that our immunosuppressant could be used for? So we were talking to vets and, you know, of all the diseases that we talked to vets about, they were like, oh my God, yes. Like any treatment you can create for feline stomatitis would be great. Right now, the only option is, is surgery. So that's, that's really where we started our exploration of like using, using cats as, as our, you know, first indication here. I love that. I love that. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, it's feline stomatitis, correctly? You are correct. Uh, Awesome. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how it affects cats and um, perhaps why and how uh, a more safe, a safer psychosporin could really be useful in this context? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah. So feline stomatitis, um, it's sort of like a, you know, have you ever had like a canker sore? Yeah. Yeah. So stomatitis is close to that, except cats get it really bad. So they get basically a bunch of sores all over their mouth and lips. Um, and like, you know, it's, they can't eat, they can't drink, uh, and they're really miserable. And if, you know, they don't, if something's not done, you know, they, well, can be as bad as you'd expect not eating and drinking to be. Um, so that's, that's basically, you know, the, the disease and it affects, you know, about a million cats per year in the U S uh, and like the current treatment was, or is, uh, pulling teeth. Um, so they literally will sedate the cat, pull all its teeth. Um, and this will happen to cats. They're like two, three years old. It's really sad. Oh, man. It's expensive. Can be a thousand, two thousand. I've even heard $3,000. Um, and you know, it only works like 70% of the time. So it's, it's rough all, all together. So we were, you know, looking at these studies and found that a couple people had experimented with using cyclosporin instead of pulling teeth. So they were, you know, used it before pulling teeth, like instead of it, and they also used it um, after. And basically what we found or what these these authors found um, is that cyclosporin does work. But again, it's difficult to use. It has a high rate of side effects. Um, and so, you know, they like the authors basically in the papers themselves were like, you know, it would this looks really good, but it's tricky enough that, you know, you should probably stick with like 
surgery first and then cyclosporine only if you absolutely have to. So then reading this, you know, these are papers from like 2006, 2010, 2013, you know, I was reading that and I was like, huh, I have a better version of cyclosporine. So that's, that's sort of how it, how it got started on the idea of feline stomatitis. That's great. That's great. Um, you know, how expensive are feline, you know, clinical trials and what is the, how's the regulatory environment difficult with different between humans and cats, if that makes sense? Yes. That's a great question. Um, yeah, so there's there's a big difference there. So basically, you know, human clinical trials, you've got, uh, you get your sort of preclinical work, and then you talk to the FDA and you say, I would like to test my drug in uh, humans. And the FDA says, okay, make sure you have all your ducks in a row, make sure you know the drug is safe, that, you know, safe, and you can manufacture it and whatever, whatever. So that can be super expensive. Um, and then they allow you to test your drug in healthy humans. Then they allow you to test your drug for safety in healthy humans. And at last, they allow you to test your drug uh, in sick humans. Um, and there's a lot of you know paperwork around this because you know you don't want to be hurting anyone. Um, for animals, it's really different. So for animals, the FDA's basically basic position is you know we don't care what you do to lab animals. Like you have to abide by minimal ethical standards. And for the record, we abide by way more than that. And we're working with people who are, you know, very careful about, you know, the well-being of their animals. Um, but from the FDA's standard, they actually don't need to talk to you until you want to work on basically pets. So, you know, we don't have to talk to the FDA when we work on our lab cats um, which we're going to be doing for our healthy lab cats and for our safety trial. And then we're going to talk to the FDA once we want to, you know, recruit some people whose pets actually have feline stomatitis. Um, and so the cost of this like initial trial where we're testing our drug combination on healthy cats and saying, okay, it's reasonably safe. It works better than the original version of cyclosporin. It can be dosed less often and, you know, can stay around in the blood longer. Um, so that cost is about 300,000 all in. So that's actually, you know, we're currently fundraising, uh, right now to basically cover that gap, which is, you know, we have about 200,000 in the bank and we're need to cover the extra hundred thousand for, to finish out our, you know, pilot trials. That's great. That's great. And can you give like context for your listeners who might not know how much human trials cost? What is the cost Delta between, you know, your, your study and doing an equivalent uh, trial in humans? Yeah. So we started off doing it, uh, thinking about this in humans. We had a human autoimmune disease that we wanted to, um, you know, test this combination on. Um, and so the cost for that would have been around 1.4 million um, for basically doing probably would have ended up being more than that, probably around 1.6 million for doing like a good high quality, you know, uh, trial in healthy humans. And, you know, meanwhile, we're going to be about 300,000 for a good high quality trial in healthy cats. So, you know, it's a big difference. Cats, there's less regulation. You can pay cats and cat food, you know, rather than money. Uh, cats are very happy to stay overnight in the facility because, you know, they don't have a home that they're waiting to get back to. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's much cheaper. 
That's great. That's great. Why don't more people use, uh, you know, cats as uh, subjects for these trials? Uh, so, you know, if you think of cats specifically, uh, the basic reason why you would use dogs instead of cats is because cats are tricky. Like, you know, you the cats that we're working with have actually been trained to take drugs and trained to be okay with having their blood drawn. Um, and if they're not, then, you know, giving drugs to a cat is, <laughs> I mean, difficult, difficult. Yeah. They will, they will bite you. Meanwhile, dogs, you know, you put it in peanut butter and they're happy to take it. Um, so that's, that's why people don't use cats instead of dogs. Uh, the reason why people don't often do what we do and do, you know, sort of the animal trial instead of the human trial or switch from human to animal uh, is really economics. Um, so for, you know, your average disease, um, it's going to be way more lucrative in humans than it is uh, in animals. So for instance, you know, a really big example is uh, not a lot of people know there's actually a drug for uh, doggy dementia for basically oh, canine yeah? Alzheimer's. Um, it probably doesn't work, but more to the point, it's it's not that widely prescribed because the only real concern people have with doggy dementia is like, you know, you want to make sure your dog doesn't, you know, pee inside the house. Uh, but other than that, like people don't really care. Um, meanwhile, of course, you know, human Alzheimer's is something people care a lot about. And it's like, you know, a drug for human Alzheimer's would bring in like a hundred billion a year. So you know, there's not that many diseases that people care enough about in animals to be willing to pay for them. Um, and, you know, feline stomatitis is is one of them. There are a couple auto, other autoimmune diseases like atopic dermatitis, like the itchy skin rash that people pay for. And that's like a billion dollars a year. Um, but, you know, there there's really not that many drugs that are worth developing in animals from an economic perspective. That's great. That's great. Uh, what do you see... Uh, what do you expect to see from this trial specifically? What, what kind of outcome do you expect to, to see? Yeah. So, you know, what we're going to see at the end of this trial is basically that our drug is reasonably safe, that it works better than the original form of cyclosporin, um, and that, you know, we can dose it basically once per week uh, or roughly once or twice per week instead of the current cyclosporin, which is once per day. Um, and so that's, that's pretty exciting because, you know, cyclosporin right now is a pretty commonly used drug in animals. I mean, it's used in dogs, it's used in cats. Um, you know, it used to be used really commonly for atopic dermatitis, which, you know, as I mentioned is billion dollar a year, um, uh, disease in, in dogs. Uh, so, you know, essentially at the end of this trial, if we can say, you know, we are, I don't know, 80% sure, 90% sure that our drug is better than the original form of cyclosporin. Uh, you know, that means at the end of this trial, we're going to be pretty sure that we can, at the very least, take on the, you know, X hundreds of millions per dollars that, you know, per year that people spend on animal cyclosporin. Uh, and that's not even counting expanding the market like we plan to do with feline stomatitis. That's great. That's great. I, I, I'm curious, what are the steps after the trial? Like, what do you need to, need to do next to commercialize, let's say, just in pets? Yeah. So, you know, 
if we want to go totally on our own, we have to do safety trial, uh, which is basically recruit a bunch of cats and follow them for a long time as they're given this to make sure that they're, you know, no safety issues crop up in like say month four, you know, because the trial we're doing right now is only two weeks. So we would only see, you know, very immediate safety effects. Um, so, and then after that, we would talk to the FDA, you know, say, here's what we have so far. Here's what we want to do next. They give us the okay. And then we basically go to a bunch of vets all around the country and say, do you have owners with feline stomatitis? You know, well, cats with feline stomatitis. Uh, if so, can we, you know, recruit them for our trial and, you know, they'll take this experimental drug and see if it works better than surgery. Um, so that would be, you know, basically it. And then we would, you know, of course, market and sell the drug. Um, so that's if we go totally on our own. Uh, another option is, you know, we've already been approached by a couple different big pharmaceutical companies uh, who are interested in licensing the drug. Um, and what's neat about that is they would license it only in animals. So, you know, they basically give us upfront payments and then milestone payments and then some sort of royalty fee. Uh, and they would do basically everything that I had talked about, you know, the safety trial, the FDA, you know, the, the pivotal trial and with pets. Um, so they would do all that. And then we could focus just going back to the human autoimmune and human neurodegenerative stuff. Um, so I think, you know, once we finish this pilot trial, we're going to, you know, get in some serious talks with a couple of these big pharmaceutical companies that have approached us. Uh, see see what their thoughts are, and then you know we'll we'll basically have our option. You know we can either go it on our own, or you know uh, license it out and go specifically for um, human autoimmune disease. So it's uh, yeah some good good times, some some good uh, choices to make. That's great. I, do you have any sense on which way you want to go? Do you want to keep it in house? Do you want to you know license things out? Um. So if I could get uh. So I would love to license it out specifically for animals because I think that's a less, I, I, I am sort of human biased. I think it's a less important problem than, you know, the autoimmune diseases that exist for humans that, you know, are really, uh, can be pretty devastating and, you know, don't have great treatments. Um, so, you know, if I can find a partner who's, you know, an animal health company that's, uh, I think is responsible that will, you know, do the trials correctly, that will, you know, uh, actually bring the drug to market and not just shelve it. Um, then I would love to partner with one of them. Uh, but you know, something that I've literally already told, like the, the pharmaceutical companies we've been talking to is, you know, part of my conditions for licensing would be, you know, you have to take this as far as possible. Like I, I really right. would not be interested in anyone, you know, paying us money to basically put this on a shelf forever, which is something that, you know, uh, depending on their incentives, uh, they might do. Cause you know, for instance, Elanco, uh, is still selling, you know, uh, the original form of cyclosporin and their incentives, if they license it might just be, let's take out this competitor. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, speaking of humans, can you talk a little bit about the application of your drug in humans, specifically for human autoimmune diseases? Yeah. 
Yeah. So most human autoimmune diseases used to be treated with cyclosporine. Um, so, you know, back in like the eighties, if you had psoriasis, if you had Crohn's, um, basically anything you would have been given cyclosporine and that's become less and less common as biologics have become more common. Um, cause cyclosporine, as I mentioned, is, is a tough drug to administer, uh, and biologics are generally safer. So the, the thing that still exists in human autoimmune diseases is basically a combination of two things. Some people just can't afford biologics. I mean, uh, you're paying a minimum of a thousand a month. So, you know, anyone who, you know, who has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis is paying a minimum of a thousand a month and probably more. Um, and then there's also drugs that, you know, diseases that don't have really clear physiology. We don't really understand, you know, how the disease starts, how it progresses. And so we can't develop biologics for those. Um, and so that's uh, a big place where, you know, cyclosporine could be really useful. Um, so right now, actually, uh, the two... Well, the absolute biggest use case for cyclosporine is still in organ transplants because, uh, I mean, you can't have a biologic because it's every part of your immune system attacks an organ transplant. Um, so it has to be a general immunosuppression. Um, but there's also other stuff that's, you know, uh, could be really useful, like, you know, lupus nephritis, um, which is a side effect of, of lupus where, you know, people can get some serious kidney disease. Um there was actually literally just an improved uh, version of cyclosporine developed for that. Um, and that's, that's approved and that's being sold right now. Uh, and we think that our drug would be better than that. It's called voclosporine. Um, so that would be, for instance, one, one really appealing target for us is, you know, uh, creating better treatments for something like lupus nephritis. Makes sense. Makes sense. What about neurodegeneration? Uh, what applications do you see there? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So as, as you, as you notice, you know, I, uh, some people, you know, doctors mostly are surprised when I say, you know, oh, let's, we're doing neurodegeneration after autoimmune disease. Cause you know, they think of cyclosporine as this immunosuppressant. Um, but you know, I, I wrote a, wrote a whole, uh, blog post about this actually. Um, cyclosporine is this really interesting drug that has, um, sort of this completely different side effect that it, uh, protects the mitochondria from, from apoptosis. So like, you know, mitochondria, as you may or may not know, started off as a completely different, like, you know, bacteria, or I think it was actually technically a prokaryote, but started off as a different cell that billions of years ago, our cells sort of subsumed and adopted as, you know, the powerhouse of the cell. Um, and one interesting thing about that is the mitochondria has retained some of its, uh, you know, characteristics back when it used to be a, you know, organism on its own. And one of those is in times of a lot of stress, uh, it kills itself, which um, maybe it was, didn't originally kill itself. Maybe there was a different sort of evolutionary adaptation. Uh, but, you know, for us now, uh, the practical results of that is in times of high stress, mitochondria will die in large numbers. 
And that can be really bad if it happens in your brain or nervous system. So for instance, you know, um, one thing that cyclosporin has actually been studied in is like traumatic brain injury. Um, if you, uh, a really common thing is people get hit in the head really hard and they seem, you know, okay ish for like 24 hours, 48 hours. And then all of a sudden they go downhill really rapidly. And what happens basically is, you know, that causes stress to the like neurons and the mitochondria start dying. And as they die, they create more stress on the other mitochondria and you get this cascade where, you know, from the doctor's perspective, it looks like the person with traumatic brain injury was fine for like 24 hours after the injury. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're uh, experienced like really significant brain trauma. Um, and so cyclosporin uh, as calcineurin inhibitor is something that can prevent that. So there have been a bunch of experiments around that. Um, there have been experiments around uh, using cyclosporin and also a similar drug called uh, tacrolimus uh, in dementia, you know, with the same idea that some forms of dementia can be caused by that sort of like cascading mitochondria death, you know, all the powerhouses of the cell and the brain, you know, sort of going out at the same time. Uh, so those are the sorts of neurodegenerative diseases that that's going to be a lot trickier to to run a trial in than autoimmune disease because it's less well understood. Uh, but I think that could be, you know, something that'd be really, really helpful, you know. And when I think of like maximum impact sort of stuff, uh, you know, something like, I mean, almost none of the neurodegenerative diseases have good uh, treatments. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's so many of them that are mitochondria related and that we could, you know, do some really interesting trials to, to try to, um, try to fix. And, and that feels like the ultimate goal to me. It's like a, a, a real treatment for dementia, um, yeah. and a, a bonus, perhaps you save American football as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, football, uh, there's also strokes. I mean, that's another one that like. You know, again, there's there's a lot of different stuff. Uh, it's it's really interesting, and like you know, there's been all this like hints about in the literature for years, but like there's been no economic incentive to run these trials because cyclosporin itself is generic, so no one else, no one can make money off it if you know these, or no one can make money off it, you know, in sort of this monopolistic way if they um, uh, successfully you know fund a trial. So it's just like random academics, like cobbling together grants here and there to, to run these trials. But, you know, if, if we could do that, that, that could be huge. So th that's your sense why it really has not happened. It, it, there, there has not really been an economic incentive to go out there and, and make this a, a reality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's a lot of people don't know this, but. Uh, and human trials, you know, as I mentioned, they're super expensive, you know, to run a trial in healthy people is, you know, at least a million and a half to run a trial in sick people can be way more expensive, you know, depending on what you're doing, you know, easily 20, 30 million. Um, academics don't have access to that kind of money. It's the only, the only groups that have access to that sort of money are really, you know, a couple very well-funded nonprofits and then, the, you know, for-profit companies, you know, the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, if there's no economic incentive 
for you know running this trial if if no one can patent the results at the end of it. Um, it's almost certainly not going to happen unless you know you get that random one really funded nonprofit that's happy to do it. So you know, and that's like there's a list of like three or four nonprofits that that fund trials like that. And you know, it's not the ones you'd expect either. You know, people sometimes are like, oh, you know, why don't you just contact like you know the there's like the allergic disease society or whatever. Or why don't you contact like the lupus foundation? Uh, and they don't give out money like that and they don't have money like that. You know, they can give out like a grant of like 50,000 to run a like trial in Petri dishes for a scientist. But, you know, they they don't remotely have the funding to do, you know, um, you know, even like a million dollar trial, never mind a 30 million dollar trial. Right. It's just just their capital constraint and it's, it's too difficult for them. They're not really set up for that. Um Trevor, I, I really love the effort. I, I, I'm I'm really inspired by your work, and it's it's been nice to see your your progression over time. I think we talked about a year ago, and you've made a lot of progress, which I find uh, really inspiring. Trevor, if, if people want to help, how how can they do that? Like, what are your big needs right now? Uh, so big needs right now are you know the biggest thing is capital, uh, and then the second biggest thing is you know. If you're uh, connected to, you know, uh, any of like the sort of pharmaceutical companies who would be interested in specifically animal health. Um, but more, more importantly, probably for the listeners of this show, um, you know, if, if you find this interesting, if you'd like to help, uh, we're running a crowd investing campaign right now. Uh, and you can find a link to that on the top of my Twitter. So, you know, just search for Trevor Klee on Twitter. And I've got the post pinned. Um, or if you're an accredited investor um, and you want to invest like twenty five thousand or more, um, you can also reach out to me directly through my website trevorclay.com. Um, I'm I'm very easy to find online. I'm super Googleable, so you know feel free to reach out to me Twitter trevorclay.com whatever. Um, yeah, and of course if anyone has any questions, clarifications that sort of thing before wanting to invest money, you know, more than happy to talk. That's great. That's great. Well, Trevor, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'll put some links down there in the show notes so people know where to find you. All right. Thank you very much, Will. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you again. Absolutely. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.